tonight we're just going to look at one verse, uh, Psalm 27 and verse 4. Please turn there in your Bibles, Psalm 27 and verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. <clears throat> All the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we ask your help this evening as we consider this one verse would you help us to understand it and would you impress its truth and its application on our hearts and it's in jesus name that we pray amen so tonight we're just looking at that one verse psalm 27 verse 4 and in it, we see a picture of Christian maturity, a longing for God and a love for his church. As we consider this verse together, I'll explain that. Let's begin with a working definition of the beauty of the Lord. First, we should note that when we speak of the beauty of the Lord, we're speaking about a non-visual beauty. It can't be physical beauty or visual beauty because as the children's catechism says, God is spirit and does not have a body like men. And even the body of Christ, which is joined to the person of the son of God without conversion, composition or confusion has, as Isaiah 53 puts it, no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, there's nothing special about Christ's human body. He was basically, we could say, just an average looking guy. So the beauty of the Lord is not about the way the Lord looks. And of course, there is a category for non-visual beauty. Think, for example, of poetry. Different people have different tastes, and so, Opinions may vary about what constitutes beautiful poetry or beautiful language, but most would readily agree that language can be used in a beautiful way. And of course, sound can be beautiful. We might think of music or a baby's babbling or a baby's laughter. Beautiful sounds, things that make our hearts happy when we hear them. But still, neither of these things are what is meant by the phrase, the beauty of the Lord. It's not that the Lord uses language well, or that he sounds beautiful. The beauty of the Lord refers essentially to the virtues of God, if we may put it that way. Just as we value the virtues in other people of heroism, love, selflessness, so there are what we might call virtues in God, his attributes, his excellencies, 
is perfections would be the more common terminology. But I say virtues to make the point that they are who God is rather than what God does. When a war hero sacrifices himself to save the other man in his unit, the sacrifice is the action he took. But that action stemmed from or arose from a virtue in the man. Selflessness or love. That's the kind of person he was, which is why he took the action of sacrificing himself. When we speak about the beauty of the Lord, we're not denying the beauty of his actions, the beauty of his work of creating or the creation itself. We're not denying the beauty of that. Nor are we denying the beauty of God's actions in salvation, the beauty of the cross or the beauty of being saved, the beauty of grace. We're not denying those things, but we're not speaking specifically about God's actions when we speak about the beauty of the Lord. We're speaking about God's attributes, who God is in himself. Even without regard for or respect to his actions, God himself is beautiful. The Bible tells us in a select few places, including here in Psalm 27, 4, that God is beautiful. But there are surprisingly few places which tell us specifically which attributes in God form the basis of his beauty. And I can't help but think that this is intentional. Because there are two ways to communicate that everything about someone is beautiful. To list them all, or to say something like, I don't even know where to begin. I couldn't name just one thing. For those of you who are married, perhaps your, your wife walks into the room in a new dress or something like this, and she says, what do you think? And you could say, wow, I love it, it's so beautiful, and you could talk, talk, talk about it. Or you might almost be hushed into silence and just, just looking with your jaw open, like, wow, I don't even know what to say. These are two different ways to do the same thing, to impress upon your hearer that just the degree of beauty. And so I think the silence of the Bible almost causes us to reflect more on the beauty of the Lord and what is it that makes the Lord so beautiful. Rather than giving us a list, it just leaves it at the Lord is beautiful and we're left to think about it and meditate on it. And when we do think about it and meditate on it, we realize that we cannot prioritize one attribute over another and say attribute A is beautiful, but attribute B is not. Nor can we say even that attribute A is most beautiful and attribute B is less beautiful. To make that a little more concrete, consider this. People do something like that all the time with God's love and holiness in the course of evangelism. People will go on and on and on gushing about how God is love, and then they sort of almost apologetically say, but he is also holy, and they go on to tell someone about their sin and their guilt. This demonstrates that they think God's love is more beautiful 
than his holiness. But everything that God is is beautiful. We can't prioritize one of his attributes over another. His holiness is, in fact, beautiful. For how hideous God would be if he were apathetic towards sin and the destruction that it brings and the dishonor that it does to himself. God's love also is beautiful. Oh, just to behold the triune fellowship of the Father, Son, and Spirit alone together in eternity past. And all other attributes of God, his love, his holiness, everything else is equally beautiful. If something were superior in any way to God, that other thing would be God and not him. By definition, God is the standard and therefore the superlative of every good thing. The beauty of the Lord is, therefore, who God is in all his multifaceted and equally beautiful glory. So with that working definition in mind, the beauty of the Lord is therefore who God is. Let's look more closely at the actual words of Psalm 27 and verse 4, beginning with the first phrase, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. David has a foremost singular focus in his life. Obviously, David does not mean that he has no desire whatsoever for food and water, nor no desire for physical protection and safety. Nor does David mean that he is unable to recognize anything desirable or beautiful in anything but God. We see David appealing in the Psalms many times for protection. We see him in Psalm 22, 15, appealing to God to restore his strength and quench his thirst. We see David recognizing beauty in creation in multiple Psalms as well. So at least in some sense, David does seek after other things besides the one thing that he mentions here. But this statement, one thing have I asked of the Lord, one thing will I seek after, is a statement of the comparative strength of David's desire. It's as if David said, of everything I ask of the Lord or seek after, this will be the one primary thing. And it will be so primary that other things aren't even worth comparing in importance. I'll ask the Lord and seek after this one thing so devotedly and focusedly that you might as well say it's the only thing that I seek after. This is like Psalm 51, when after committing adultery and killing the woman's husband, he says to the Lord, against you and you alone, have I sinned? David didn't really think he was guiltless toward Bathsheba and Uriah. But comparatively, he realized that his sin against the Lord was the far more weighty matter. This is also like when Jesus said that if anyone wants to be his disciple, they must hate their father and mother. Of course, Jesus is not casting the fifth commandment aside and saying, don't worry about honoring your parents anymore. You just hate them now. Obviously, that's not what Jesus is doing. Rather, Jesus is saying that allegiance to himself must precede any and all other relationships, including family relationships, 
like with your parents, and by such a wide margin that your love for Christ makes all other loves pale in comparison, so drastically that they could be described as hate. So compared to the way that so-and-so loves Jesus, it's like he hates his parents. That's the idea here. So David is saying, I'm going to seek this one thing. I'm going to ask the Lord for this one thing. So with such focus and devotion that you might as well say it's the only thing I seek after. And what is David's foremost singular focus? It's just one thing, but it's twofold. It has two aspects. One aspect pertaining to the house of the Lord or the temple. And one aspect pertaining to the beauty of the Lord. Let's discuss both, beginning with David's desire to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. When with fixedness of thought, Matthew Henry says, when with fixedness of thought and a holy flame of devout affections, we contemplate God's glorious excellencies. This is that view of the beauty of the Lord which David here covets. Have you ever, have you ever fixed your thoughts on God and felt a flame of devout affections in your heart as you contemplate God's glorious excellencies? If you have literally no idea what I'm talking about, I would suggest to you that you may have never experienced the new birth. For as Matthew Henry also says, to delight in God above any creature is a sign that we are of those whom God protects as his own. Sure, we find our vision of God obscured at times. There is a spiritual fog or a dark night of the soul or a blurriness caused by bad doctrine or trying circumstances. For whatever reason, we sometimes lose sight of God. But to have never known anything of fixing your thoughts on God and finding a fire of holy affections burning in your heart for God is a bad sign that perhaps you have never seen the beauty of the world. Do you desire to see the beauty of the Lord? For the first time, again and again, first you need to know God. And to know God, you must read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the scripture, as the Book of Common Prayer says. You must pour over the Bible until you see our triune God in all his glorious perfections. Come to us in Christ. Coming down to us again one day as Pastor Chris preached this morning. To dwell with those people who are his in and through Christ Jesus. You must learn his law and see yourself as a sinner. You must learn his gospel and find out that Christ came to save sinners. You must not just embrace the doctrine of the gospel, but the Savior himself. 
leaning on Jesus, trusting in his life and death on your behalf to achieve the righteousness that you didn't and couldn't, and trusting that he bore the wrath that you deserved. You must turn from your sins and begin to try to obey God day by day. And throughout, you must keep the eyes of faith fixed on God as he has revealed himself in his word, most fully and completely in Christ. As John Owen says, the discovery that is made in the scriptures, or the revelation that is made in the scriptures, of the glorious excellencies and endowments of Christ's person, of his love, his goodness, his grace, of his worth and worth, is that which engages the affections of believers unto him. In other words, how do you get your affections attached to Christ? By looking at the revelation that is made in the scriptures of him. And Owen goes on to say, and it is the eye of faith alone that can see the king in his beauty. Do you desire to see the beauty of the Lord? Do you cry out with David, I want to gaze on the beauty of the Lord? What then should you do? Begin with believing the gospel. Trust in Jesus. Keep believing the gospel. Do your devotions every day. It's shocking to me. And I don't, I don't mean to be self-righteous here because sometimes I miss my devotions too. But it's shocking to me that Christians would go a day without reading the Bible. That Christians would go a day without praying. We want to have a close Walk with God. We want to feel a flame of holy affections in our hearts for God. And we think that that will just happen somehow. Without, as John Owen said, looking at the revelation that is made of God in the scriptures. Without looking with the eyes of faith upon the revelation of God. Without talking to that God. Do your devotions every day. Read your Bible. Commune with God in prayer. Plead if you can't see him. If you can't gaze on the beauty of the Lord because there's a fog or a dark night of the soul that is obscuring your vision. Plead with the Lord for a clearer view of him. Spend time with people who direct your thoughts and your affections Godward. Be one who does that for others. Christians, how often do we spend time together informally and fail to stir up in one another a greater love for God? Just because we're not intentional about it. Would we all be, as Pastor Chris was saying this morning, more heavenly minded? Not just thinking about heaven as the end, which Pastor Chris was focusing on this morning, but also heaven as the above, even now. Would we set our mind on things above? Not just things coming, yes, that, but also things above. This world is not all there is. 
would we Christians lift our thoughts and our affections heavenward day by day? And Christians, our conversations and our interactions with one another too. And don't wait for it to start with someone else, but become that kind of Christian that points others Godward. Like athletic training partners, your running buddy or your gym buddy. Sometimes neither partner feels like working out on a particular day. Neither of them. But they've mutually committed to train together and to go together. And so they both make the effort. They know that so-and-so is going to be at the gym at such and such a time. And so they have to be there too. Or one doesn't feel like it, but the other does. And so he's able to be an encouragement. Christians, will we see ourselves in some way analogous to that as being training partners with one another? Even if we, neither of us feel like stirring up our affections for God, our mutual affections for God, even if neither one of us feels like being intentional about being heavenly minded, because of our mutual commitment to grow in Christ's likeness, to fan into flame our affections for God. Would each of us try to be that for the other person? And in addition to daily devotions and informal Christian fellowship, if you want to see the beauty of the Lord, if you desire to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, commit yourself to the church. Really commit. Let's consider now David's desire to be in the house of the Lord. In this psalm, David refers to the house of the Lord and the temple of the Lord. In this case, it's the same referent. It's the same, refers to the same place. In the New Testament, the concept of the temple can be applied to individual believers or the church or even Christ Jesus himself. But the New Testament application of this particular usage would be the church. Here's Matthew Henry again. With what a gracious earnestness, David prays for a constant communion with God and holy ordinances. David desires that he might duly and constantly attend on the public worship, pardon me, the public service of God. In the courts of God's house, the priests had their lodgings, and David wished that he had been one of them. To be ever engaged in the worship of God, in the place where God had promised to be specially present, is the desire of David's heart. He wants not only to fix his thoughts on God and to contemplate God's excellencies, David wants to do it in the church, so to speak, where God had promised to be specially present. In the Old Testament, it was the temple where God had promised to be specially present. For us, it's not a building. It's not a geographical, spatial location, but a people. When we Christians are assembled in the name of Jesus, God is specially present among us. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them, Jesus says. Matthew 18, 20. 
This does not mean, contrary to public opinion, that when three believers get together for a coffee, God is specially present among them. It means that when the church is assembled as the church, with the marks of a true church upon them, even if it's a small church of two or three, God is specially present among them. See, God has promised to be with his people in a special, particular way as we are assembled for worship and for the other duties of church life, like discipline, which is the context of Matthew 18. God's plan of redemption is, by God's design, deeply interwoven with the institution of the church. It is the church which is the pillar and buttress of the truth, 1 Timothy 3.15. And it is the church primarily, it is in the church primarily, that we are stirred up to love and good works. Hebrews 10.23-25. The church is called the apple of God's eye. And so closely does Jesus identify himself with his people. That in Matthew 25, Jesus teaches that the way we treat brothers and sisters in Christ is the way that he will consider us to have treated himself. In view of this, Christian, really commit yourself to the apple of God's eye. Get on board with the Father's heart and the Father's plan for his people. Prioritize being where God has promised to specially be. Namely, among his people formally gathered as the church. Christian, it ought to be your earnest desire for us to gather again in person one of these days. It ought to be your earnest desire to be among the assembly of the saints, not only on Sunday mornings, but on evenings too. If it's your overarching desire to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, you'll take advantage as often as possible of the worship happening in his temple among his people, where he has promised to specially be. Where gazing on the beauty of the Lord is the constant aim and activity. That's where you want to be. If it is your overarching desire to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. Yes, you'll do your devotions. Yes, you'll do family worship. Yes, you'll get together with other brothers and sisters informally and try to spur them on to a greater love for God. To behold more clearly the beauty of the Lord. Yes, you'll ask them and hope that they'll do that for you. But also you will long to be with the gathered church where God has promised to specially be. Let me paint a mental picture for you in closing of a person who is a modern-day David, a mature Christian, longing to dwell in the house of the Lord, to inquire in his temple, and to gaze on the Lord's beauty. What would a life like that look like 
in the modern day. Let me paint a mental picture for you. This person was once lost, but now is found. Was once blind, but now sees. He discovered that there is a God, thrice holy, who is of purer eyes than to behold evil. And he came to realize that he himself was a sinner in need of reconciliation to this thrice holy God. As he read the pages of scripture, relief crept over him. As he saw that God sent his son into the world to seek and to save the lost. As he read that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. What kind of God would do that? Oh, the beauty, he thought, as he rested his hope in that Christ Jesus, who came to seek and save the lost, who came to save sinners. This man trusted in Christ's life, Christ's merit, in the place of his own disobedience and sin. This man trusted that when Christ died, he suffered in his place bearing the wrath that he had deserved for his sin against God. And now a new Christian who went to a nearby church on Sunday and sang, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood, Hallelujah, what a savior. And in that same church, over time, this man learned of God's promises to Adam and to Abraham and to David and how they're all fulfilled in Christ. One Christmas he sang, come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. And he realized that he was one, set free by Jesus. And he heard a sermon on the verse, whoever the Son sets free is free indeed. And he learned about God's patience and forbearance with the nation of Israel prior to the sending of the Messiah and how that's a picture of our sinfulness and God's forbearance with us. And time rolled on, and week after week, he kept going, and he learned that the animal sacrifices pictured Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God. He learned that the priests prefigured Christ, our great high priest. He sang in that same church, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest, whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. And the years rolled by, and he grew to love the people in the pews next to him, and they grew to love him. And it wasn't always exciting. Sometimes it felt kind of boring, to be honest. And there were hard times. There was conflict in the church, and there was controversy 
in the church over the years at times. And some people came and some people left. But through the ups and downs, the exciting and the boring some stayed. He and a number of others. And those brothers and sisters in Christ plodded along. And they learned and they sang and they ate and they drank of Christ's body and blood. And they baptized new believers and they taught and discipled the new believers. And they practiced hospitality, having one another in their homes. They loved and served one another through all the difficulties and challenges that each one experienced at times and in seasons. And they sang, I love thy church, O God, with the faces of one another in their mind's eye as they say, I love thy church, O God. For her my tears shall fall. For her my prayers send. To her my cares and toils be given, till toils and cares shall end. And they labored on, all the while growing, sometimes imperceptibly like grass, but growing. And the coals of love for one another and for God grew hotter and hotter. And the longer they walked together, the more that they loved one another. And they sang about Jesus. The longer I serve him, the sweeter he grows. One evening, late in his life, this now gray-haired man. Look back many years later at the early days and could see in the long view how much he had grown. He saw that all the while he had been gazing on the beauty of the Lord and he had come to see so much beauty in God over these many years. And he reflected on how little he still knew of God. And he found his heart longing to continue to gaze on the beauty of the Lord more. And he realized that he had been gazing on the beauty of the Lord all the while in the context of the house of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And he realized as he thought about how much he longed to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, that he longed to gaze on the beauty of the Lord together with the saints on Sunday. He couldn't wait for Sunday to roll around. Yes, he opened up his Bible day by day. Yes, he prayed. But this man loved to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. And this man loved to be with the saints. 
assembled together in the name of Christ Jesus, where God had promised to specially be. This is something of a modern day comparison of what it would mean for someone now to take the words of Psalm 27 and verse 4 and make them their own. It's a fictional story. But I hope that my life will prove one day to have borne some likeness to it. And I hope that your lives one day will be seen to have borne some likeness to it. Many Christians live and die lives something like that. I hope we all live a life something like that. Where we get to the point where it's our hearts to dwell in the house of the Lord and there to gaze on the beauty of the Lord to inquire in his temple as I said at the beginning that's a real picture of Christian maturity it captures God's heart for us. That we would be a people that each individually walk closely with him. Have a rich relationship with him as our father. Personal pronouns as we talk about Christianity and our relationship with God. My God. I love God. But also that we would be people who use plural pronouns. We love God. I want to be together with my brothers and sisters. Us. God's dealings with us. I hope we all grow to own these words in a New Testament way. That we would all devotedly singularly, focusedly, ask of the Lord and seek after, dwelling in his house, there gazing on the beauty of the Lord, inquiring in his temple.